0: Hello, and welcome to The X Degree, a podcast where we delve deep into the abyss of the internet to find a strange connection between two random things. My name is Eric Stafford. Today, in our completion of our first year as a podcast, we will be on a marathon looking to the connection between the Harlem Globetrotters, an exhibition basketball team known for their wacky antics, and the Rubik's Cube, a maddening puzzle that, of course, nerds have found out a way to compete with. I feel like I keep bringing up shows and weird things I like to pull references from in this show, but hey, how else am I going to know anything? My brain at this point is one of those gift sites full of obscure references that make absolutely no sense together. But we aren't here to talk about my psyche, we're here to channel that weird inland empire to make content. So, let's pull the fact that in Futurama, the Harlem Globetrotters have become a hyper and advanced society of astrophysicists, which is a stupid but bizarre thing that I just love. Like, out of all of the cultural icons that you could pick to be a hyper-intelligent race a thousand years in the future, why did you pick the showy tricksters that do more tricks than actual basketball during their games? And the thing is, it's not 100% just a show. The Harlem Globetrotters are technically a real team. And the games are real, they are real. And they have recently filed a petition to join the NBA as an expansion franchise. Formed in 1926 in the south side of Chicago, the Globetrotters were a local Illinois team that would play exhibition shows as openers for dance hall concerts. They were renamed as the New York Harlem Globetrotters to expand their advertising into the larger black community by using Harlem, the then center of the black renaissance movement. In fact, they didn't play a single exhibition game in Harlem, until 1968, 42 years after the team was founded. For many years, they participated and one time won the World Professional Basketball Tournament in Chicago and beat the all-white Minneapolis Lakers in 1948. At the time, they were the premier and pinnacle of black basketball until the NBA began its meteoric rise and began to allow black players to join teams in 1950. After that, they stayed as a traveling exhibition team focusing more on spectacle than sports. In 1959, the Globetrotters played nine games in Soviet Moscow, which baffled the Russian spectators, until they realized it was more of a show than an actual game. But in reality, their games aren't just for show. Their perennial rivals, the Washington Generals, actually beat them in a buzzer beater in 1971 for real. Like, that wasn't scripted. They actually lost. Notable previous Globetrotters that made their way into NBA legend were Connie Hawkins, Nat Clifton, and Wilt freaking Chamberlain, arguably the best player of all time. Do not argue that. You know it's true. Who else has scored 100 points in a game? Hmm? Yeah, exactly. But finally, they host a draft every year right before the NBA draft and recruit athletes and other notable people to join the team, which, you know, very few do. But in recent years, they've drafted former U.S. goalkeeper Tim Howard, Lionel Messi, Usain Bolt, Mariano Rivera, Johnny Manziel, U.S. Olympic swimmer Missy Franklin, Gal Gadot, and New York Yankee Aaron Judge. And how most of us know them is their plethora of pop culture appearances, from Hanna-Barbera cartoons to Love Boat to Gilligan's Island, Futurama, The Simpsons, Sesame Street, and for us, the CBS reality game show, The Amazing Race. It began in 2001 and has sem- run semi-continuously through the COVID pandemic, but we will be returning for season 33 in 2022. The premise of the show is that 11 teams of pairs compete in stage races around the globe. Throughout their race, teams are told destinations to reach, where they are either receive another destination to reach or have to complete some time-consuming ta- challenge, typically representative of the culture they're in. Each week, the race typically remains in one country or region, And at the end of the episode, the last team to reach the stage finish line is eliminated. The show is also produced by a nan named Bertram van Munster, which is just fantastic. Over the years, there have been typical reality competition show gimmicks of competitors. And one of the fan favorite teams was the pair of Herbert Flight Time Lang and Nathaniel Big Easy Lofton, Harlem Globetrotters who've competed three times in the show, making their debut in season 15, coming in fourth, then coming in second in the spinoff season Unfinished Business, and recently came in sixth in All-Stars. And they are a lot of fun to watch. For every season, though, the races begin in some large city in the United States, and competitors race through 12 or 13 different countries before returning to the U.S. for the finish line. Honestly, the host, Phil Kogan, has, like, the best job ever. And I make a point about the start and finish lines because in only three seasons, the race started and ended in the same city. And in season nine... The starting and finishing line was in the exact same location, Red Rocks Amphitheater, outside of Denver, Colorado. Red Rocks Amphitheater is assumed to be the site of tribal events for the local Ute tribes of the area, but the modern Red Rocks Amphitheater opened in 1906, and was officially purchased by the city of Denver and renovated for an official opening in 1941. The amphitheater sits at 6,450 feet above sea level, tucked into the protruding rock formations on the edge of the Rocky Mountains. At current construction, the amphitheater has a capacity of 9,525 seats. A little fun fact, on a hiking trail just north of the amphitheater in Red Rock State Park, a couple friends and I had to hurl rocks at a coiled rattlesnake sitting in the middle of the trail that we were hiking on. So I really kind of want to go back and see a show because that's the only uh, reference I have for that. Like any other world-renowned venue today, there's a laundry list of notable performances that have occurred in the amphitheater in its 80-year history. And that can do my usual reading of said list, but it's usually just a time filler. And we have to get a, kind of have to get a move on to it. This is a long one. So I'll just cut to the chase. Red Rocks was the only venue that the Beatles performed not in front of a sold-out crowd on their 1964 U.S. Invasion tour. And when Ringo and his all-stars returned to the amphitheater in 2000, he didn't let them forget it. The comedian John Oliver once made a joke about the UK, the United Kingdom, birthplace of the Beatles, and yet very much the world's Ringo. And the fact that I can just say Ringo and you know who I'm talking about kind of shows how freaking big Ringo is still in the world today. I mean, other than the fact he wrote Octopus's Garden, there was always the joke that John said he wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles. Even, and even though he's sometimes music's collective punching bag, He's kind of regarded as one of the most influential rock drummers of all, of all history. Ringo joined the Beatles after the original drummer Pete Best was, you know, kind of kicked out to make room for Ringo during their, their famous Hamburg stint. And what Ringo was able to do with that simple drum kit is just astounding. And yada, yada, yada about Paul and John and George and Ringo. And then we get to what Ringo has done since. But a quick aside that I just feel like is important because it's always a weird thing to me. The debut Beatles album, Please Please Me, came out in 1963. Let It Be, the final studio album, came out in 1970. The Beatles were a recording band for only seven years. Seven years. Just seven years. Seven years ago from the day of this episode's release, 2014 was becoming 2015. I graduated high school in 2014. Imagine a band coming out of nowhere in 2014, and by 2021, they have literally changed music forever, and they will just break up because one of them married an insane person. And in those seven years, they released 13 albums. Like, that is insane. And you can also very clearly see when they started taking acid by looking at the album covers. That's just wild. Also, Paula's dead. But back to Ringo's life post-Beatles. Other than being named the fifth most influential drummer of all time, two inductions into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and a knighthood, you know, he was in favor of Brexit, because of course, not everyone's perfect, but most importantly, he was the original narrator of the show Thomas and Friends. And now we have another episode crossover. Who'd have thought that Ringo Starr and George Carlin had anything in common? Thomas and Friends was probably my favorite thing as a kid, like, period, no exceptions. If you see a photo of me from about ages two to four, I will almost always be shown with a Thomas train in my hand. And I still have all of my trains and tracks for my nieces and nephews. And my mom, being extremely sentimental, still has all of the VHS Thomas and Friends tapes that I would watch on repeat. The show was based on the Railway series by Reverend W. Audrey, published from 1945 to 1972. In it, autonomous trains with faces do train things around the island of Sodor and teach how to be proper little British boys and girls and whatnot. I actually still have my complete set of the stories from when I was a little kid, albeit held together by duct tape. But really, some of the artwork is still stunning, and I can vividly remember reading these with my dad before bed every night. The show began in 1984, and featured small-scale train sets with the characters' faces mixed in, with larger models of the trains to allow the filmmakers to add facial expressions and eye rolls on the trains. The Adventures of Thomas, Gordon, Percy, and all of the other chains with honestly creepy, still-human figurines was originally narrated by Ringo for the first two seasons, who was replaced by George Carlin, who refrained from saying the seven dirty words for the next two seasons. Overall, there have been nine narrators, and the show is still in production under the name Thomas and Friends Big World, Big Adventures. But back in 1973, the publishers of the Railway series received an offer to make a musical television show about the series by the then-huge, Tony-winning writer Andrew Lloyd Webber, who had read the series as a kid. The Right Honorable, whatever that means, Andrew Lloyd Webber, basically reinvented the modern musical and is one of the most decorated songwriters of all time. We all probably know him from his highlight reel of musicals. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Jesus Christ Superstar, Evita, Cats, Starlight Express, Phantom of the Opera, Sunset Boulevard, and his modern renditions of The Wizard of Oz, School of Rock, and now Cinderella. It says something that when one of your shows overtakes another one of your shows to become the longest continuing running show on Broadway. Again, I feel like I can just rename this show Eric Reading Laundry Lists, But in lieu of naming every single honor Andrew Lloyd Webber has received, I want to look at his 2018 Emmy for the live concert and televised performance of Jesus Christ Superstar, because it gave him his E of his EGOT. EGOT stands for the impressive accomplishment of winning an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. This is so rare that only 16 people have ever done this. Shit. More laundry list. God, I... I'm really sorry, but I kind of want to go through these because some of them are actually kind of surprising. The first winner was the composer Richard Rogers, who completed the quartet in 1962. Following him was the actress Helen Hayes in 1977. Then, also in 1977, Rita Moreno won after performing with The Muppets. It was kind of cool. Then it was actor John Gielgud in 1991. Audrey Hepburn in 1993. Composer Marvin Helm... Hemlish in 1995 and composer Jonathan Tunick in 97. And then we get to the, I think, fun ones. In 2001, the king of comedy himself, Mel Brooks, won his Tony for the producers. And God, I wish I followed him. I really, really did. I love Mel Brooks, but we need to keep going down the list. Also in 2001, the director and comedian Mike Nichols joined the group, followed by Whoopi Goldberg in 2002. Now, I'm going to skip two people for continuity reasons, and then we have our friend Andrew Lloyd Webber, along with two others who got their EGOTs from Jesus Christ Superstar in 2018, lyricist Tim Rice and singer John Legend. Actually, there's also a lot of asides in this episode, Um, but in the Between Two Ferns movie, Chrissy Teigen is hitting on comedian Zach Galifianakis, and they're in a bar, and he asks where John Legend is, and she makes a joke that he's probably polishing his EGOT, and Zach Galifianakis then goes, is that what he calls his penis? It's just great. And finally, in 2020, Disney composer Alan Menken won his Emmy to round out the list. I would also say that with the 16 that I just listed, there are five others that have technically won an EGOT, but one of them was a non-competitive or honorary award. So in a way, Barbara Streisand, Liza Minnelli, James Earl Jones, Harry Belafonte and Quincy Jones are kind of EGOTs, but just not good enough. But the two people I failed to mention in our EGOT list are our link to the Rubik's Cube. They are producer Scott Rubin and songwriter Robert Lopez. Now, I at least knew Robert Lopez from writing all the music in Frozen, but as I was reading more, the names kept striking me for some reason. And finally, down their list of awards, I found it. Rubin produced and Lopez co-wrote the all-time greatest... Broadway musical ever, The Book of Mormon, with Trey Parker and Matt Stone. If you haven't heard or seen it yet, The Book of Mormon is a musical about two Mormon missionaries who travel to Uganda, struggle with their faith, and end up creating a branch of their religion that speaks more closely with the lives and struggles of the impoverished people they are serving as they struggle against the oppressive thumb of a local warlord. But, you know, Trey Parker and Matt Stone are the guys behind South Park. So, of course, the best songs are Hasa Diga Iboi, which is a made-up phrase that the locals translate to Fuck You God, Turn It Off, which is about suppressing gay urges in the Mormon church, All-American Prophet, and Spooky Mormon Hell Dream. I was super lucky to see it in L.A. when Josh Gad of Olaf fame was still Elder Cunningham, and it was awesome. (laughs) But we need to keep this train rolling. Again, it's a long one, my bad. But now we are going to drag our toe through the myriad of shit Stone and Parker have created with South Park. From making Kanye think he was a gay fish, to having Al Gore hunt man-bear-pig, Black Friday massacres a la Game of Thrones, and just making Canada the eternal punching bag of everything. South Park could literally be the hub for any, any connection in the show if I wanted it to be. But we are going to go off in a very specific and kind of weird direction, at least to me. To the episode that Parker Stone, as a matter of fact, no one in staff, is credited for. The Scientology episode, Trapped in the Closet. In this episode, Stan joins Scientology and is realized to be the reincarnation of the founder of the organization, L. Ron Hubbard. He then goes on to try to convince the unnamed organization to disband and give back all the money it has taken from people after he learns how fantastical their beliefs may be. This prompts all the supporters of the group to sue him for defamation. And when I say this episode is by no one, it's because in the end credits, all of the names of contributors are John and Jane Smith, tempting Scientology's litigious nature. And as someone who is morbidly fascinated with the organization and the stories around it, it's a, it's a good episode. not Not the least because of the joke of the title, where the actor Tom Cruise locks himself into and refuses to come out of the closet also after they aired the episode they had to kill off chef because the voice actor isaac hayes left the show in protest because of his involvement in scientology and because i feel like even on this little podcast i'm towing the line to a lawsuit with scientology i will briefly say one or two things about tom cruise he's an action star who likes motorcycles and does his own stunts he's usually in shots with other people that seem to mask his height compared to his co-stars and his front teeth are offset. Seriously, watch Top Gun and see how many times everyone or just some people are sitting, laying down, or leaned over so you can't tell who is taller than who. And go look on the Instagram page and see what I mean about his teeth. Uh, You're never going to be able to unsee it. Alright, time to run away from that minefield. I spent way too much time pre-fruiting to avoid any libel. There is one role that Tom Cruise played in that I genuinely did not know was him until I saw the credits. He played the Hollywood mogul Les Grossman in the, in the film Tropic Thunder. Tropic Thunder is a parody film about a group of stuck-up and whiny actors who are trying to immersely film a Vietnam War movie and who accidentally get tied up at a Cambodian drug lord camp. The movie is riddled with offensive and honestly still pretty funny jokes about mental disabilities, hiding homosexuality, and drug abuse. It stars Ben Stiller, Jack Black, Robert Downey Jr., who is... He's in blackface, but in an ironic way. It's really weird, um, but it's really funny. Uh, Jay Burchell, Brendan Brandon T. Jackson, Nick Nolte, and Steve Coogan. And during the end credits, Tom Cruise is in a fat suit, he has fat hands, and he's a bald cap. That's his character, who is a loudmouth, obnoxious asshole. And he is an outrageous dance number to the ludicrous song, Get Back. But in the beginning shots of the film... They depict the actors and crew trying to accurately recreate battle scenes from the Vietnam War that go tremendously wrong and are full of infighting and miscues of explosions, emulating the chaos of filming that seemed to follow the filming of Apocalypse Now, Francis Ford Coppola's epic war psychodrama. Originally based on the 1899 story Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, the film's production was plagued with setbacks, natural disasters, Marlon Brando being Marlon Brando, Martin Sheen suffering a heart attack on set, and Coppola's delays in editing over a literal million feet of film. But after all of that, Apocalypse Now is widely regarded to be one of the greatest films ever made in multiple respects. Which is saying something, because Francis Ford Coppola is kind of known for making, you know, the greatest films ever made. Mainly, I'm talking about the Godfather films. Okay, just just Godfather one, Godfather two. A funny story I heard about those films is when Mario Puzo, who wrote the original book about the Corleone family and later worked with Coppola on the screenplay, he was relatively untrained. He was a relatively untrained writer when he wrote those. So he went to a bookstore one day and picked up a book about screenwriting. And in the first chapter of How to Learn to Be a Screenwriter, it gave the instruction: Watch the Godfather. So, I mean, I, I guess they're all right movies. But apart from movies and his Napa winery under the Coppola name that makes a pretty decent cab off Francis Ford Coppola's family are insanely talented. I mean, there's his daughter, Sophia, who is, in her own rights, a world-renowned director for Marie Antoinette, somewhere in Lost in Translation. But he also has two very respected nephews. One is the actor Jason Schwartzman of Wes Anderson film and music fame, and his other nephew, and uh, this actually, actually blew my mind, is Nicolas Cage. No, seriously, Nick Cage and Sofia Coppola are cousins, which I mean, yeah, they do weird things in their own respects, but Nick Cage is a different level of weird, and he's an Academy Award winning actor, yeah, from leaving Las Vegas, it's crazy, but I think we all know him from other films. Raising Arizona, The Rock, Con Air, Lord of War, Wickerman, Kick Ass, Ghost Rider, you know, that caliber. But in a fascinating way, when you watch him act, you, you see his, he has a weird amount of control. Like, he overacts and has weird mannerisms, but that's a style of acting. And I can make fun of him all I want, but he makes a hell of a lot of movies and makes a lot of money. And he apparently loves what he does. But seeing the end of our journey is really close. Let's take a look at his 2018 voice acting role in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. In the film, a multiverse of Spider-Man's come crashing around the new Spider-Man, Miles Morales, one of them being a film noir, black and white Spider-Man voiced by Nick Cage, who is fascinated by Miles' colorful toy, the Rubik's Cube. This is purple now. Now! I'm taking this cube thing with me. I don't understand it, but I will. And here we finally are the Rubik's Cube, named for its designer Erno Rubik, a Hungarian sculptor. It was designed in 1974 and licensed by the Ideal Toy Corporation in 1980. Before Rubik, 3D puzzle games had been around for years, but Rubik cleverly designed the interlocking plastic slides inside the cube that allowed it to move and be manipulated without falling apart. In actuality, Rubik originally designed the cube to help his design students visualizing moving 3D objects and realized that he had accidentally created a puzzle when he mixed up the colors and had to solve it back to its original pattern. And once it hit the market, the world exploded in cubes. It is still today the world's best-selling puzzle game. And multiple versions have been created to expand on the original 3x3x3 design, some going up to 17x17x17, and even a demo model for a 33x33x33 cube. And like any puzzle, nerds have to find a mathematical way to solve it, and then race each other to solve it faster. There are approximately 43 Quintillion different combinations Of the cube's layout And that number does not make sense Like it's hard To understand a number like that it, I, This is a fun little thing I always do One million Is one thousand thousand A billion Is one thousand millions A trillion is a thousand Billions and so on So 43 quintillion Is just unbelievable but even with that many possible combinations, the algorithms for solving are simple enough to follow that people learn how to speed solve on YouTube. The current record for a single solve of a three by three by three cube is held by Du Yusheng of China, who solved it in 3.47 seconds in 2018. But the record average time for five solves, which is the typical measurement, is 5.32 seconds set by the American Max Park. And like anything else, there are a multitude of other fastest solves. Max Park also holds the record for the fastest one-hand solve at 6.82 seconds. Muhammad Amon Kohli of India holds the record for the fastest foot solve in 15.56 seconds. Tommy Cherry of the U.S. can do it blindfolded in 15.2 seconds. And the list goes on. There's a fascinating documentary about speedcubing that focuses a little bit on Max Park. It's called The Speed Cubers on Netflix. Well, there it is, a globe-wide marathon of skirting lawsuits and laundry lists, but that's one way you can connect the Harlem Globetrotters to the Rubik's Cube. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to my friends for taking me hiking in Red Rocks and almost getting us bit by a rattlesnake, all my Thomas the Tank Engine toys as a kid, everything made by Trey Parker and Matt Stone, Um, an organization for not suing me, thank you, I appreciate that, and the EGOT of sources, Wikipedia. If you wanna see some photos of Ringo being Ringo, sets from the Book of Mormon, and Tom Cruise's teeth, we're on Instagram, at to the x degree. If you wanna send ideas for new connections, you can DM me there, or send an email to xdegreepod at gmail.com. Also, one year anniversary, it's been really fun. If you wanna share this with people, uh, this would be really cool. Again, just, it's fun. A tangent I wish I went down, but didn't. Out of all of the amazing things Mel Brooks has done, and in the vein of families doing cool things, Mel Brooks' son, Bax Brooks, is an author who has made his name in modern horror, specifically in zombie novels and movies. He's the author of The Zombie Survival Guide, The Harlem Hellfighters, and World War Z, which he has also helped adapt into the big Brad Pitt film. Again, thank you so much for listening over the past year. I can't wait to you know keep doing this next year and stay safe out there.